Good morning. Thanks, thanks for joining us here this morning. Um, I wanted to start out this morning by sending a very personal thank you to John because he, uh, he sent this very open topic sermon my way. So like any good friend, he's like, you know, your life's not that busy with four kids, a wife, a job. And so here, have a curveball. It, um, <laughs> you have no idea how big the Bible is until you have to find a passage on it to teach on. Because it's not that there's like, there's lots of passages. Like you could kind of pick anyone, but it's like, which is the right one? And it's like when someone asks you to tell you like your favorite movie or song or joke, you kind of freeze because you start thinking through all these variables. So it's like favorite all time, favorite slow song, favorite fast song, favorite rock song. I mean, what fits the mood right now? I mean, will they even like that musical choice? And if they don't like it, am I going to be okay with that? <laughs> it's a very convoluted and circular mental process. However, all of that being said, I didn't pick this verse because it was my favorite or any of it, but um, we're going to look at an obscure little scene at the end of John chapter 21. And this scene interested me for a couple reasons. Um, one, it kind of supports and explains some of the interesting information that we kind of repeated during our Second Peter sermon series. Um, two, it explains a bit about the relationships that John and Peter had with Jesus, and then subsequently how our relationships to Jesus should look. And three, it kind of explains a little bit more about how we should face our ministries and their unique natures. So we find all of this out during a long walk on the beach between Jesus and Peter. But let's just open in prayer. Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you that we can gather. We thank you for just the, the sunshine and the blue skies above us. And Lord, we just uh, pray this morning that um, we would just hear the words that you're placing on our heart. Lord, that, um, that we would hear the things that you want to move in us, the things that you want to change, the things that you want to shift. And Lord, that we would not let them be forgotten as we walk out these doors, but just that... Um, yeah, you would apply them to us, Lord, that we can just be further discipled by you. Amen. All right. So in chapter 21, John is finishing off his gospel. And this last chapter is a few stories that happen at the Sea of Galilee. So a few of the apostles have left the city they've, uh, and they've gone fishing. Jesus post-resurrection, but pre-ascent, appears to them. He helps them catch some fish. He makes them breakfast. And then he goes for a walk with Peter. And he famously asks Peter if he loves him three times. And then finally, Jesus has a conversation with Peter about his future and his mission. And it's here in this conversation that we're going to join in verse 18. Truly, truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to put on your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will put your belt on you and bring you where you do not want to go. Now he said this, indicating by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he said this, he said to him, follow me. So this verse is why we could so confidently say during our, our second Peter series that Peter knew he was going to die for his faith, and he knew the how of his death. That his hands would be stretched out, 
and he would be crucified. So why is Jesus telling Peter about his death? It's because Jesus wants Peter to be under no illusions of what it's going to take to build the church, to follow him. Remember, Jesus has just raised himself from the dead. And so the apostles must be thinking, if death can't stop him, what would prevent Jesus from building the kingdom that he's talked about? But as Eugene talked about a few weeks ago, out of mercy, Jesus is holding off that time to allow all the chance at salvation. So Jesus knows that for things to proceed according to the Father's will, he needs to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come. And in talking to Peter about his future death, Jesus is making sure that Peter knows it's going to be his efforts with the Holy Spirit that will be needed. Jesus knows that the path of following him does not lie in power, ease, and popularity, but instead in sacrifice, servanthood, and persecution. He said as much many times, but he wants to make sure that Peter will not deny him another three times. And while I believe that Jesus knows that, that Peter is changing and how much he is going to change when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, I think Jesus is testing Peter by making him say it to make sure Peter knows that he is forgiven, he is changing, but as we're going to read next, maybe just not quite yet. And when he had said this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back on his chest at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one betraying you? So Peter, upon seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is 19 to 22. So we've talked many times about that famous scene in Matthew 16, where Peter is the first to hear the spirit. And then kind of verses later is told to get behind me, Satan and to not be a stumbling block. It's a, it's a powerful moment, a moment of clarity, of focus and power. And then Peter looks elsewhere. Then there's the scene where Peter walks out on the water with Jesus. There's trust, there's clarity, there's focus, there's power. And then Peter looks elsewhere. Well, here's your third occurrence of the same problem. Man, Peter really has a problem with threes. I'm telling you, it's a bad number for him. Jesus is talking to Peter about his ministry to build the church. He is telling Peter that he will die, but that Peter just needs to focus on him. But Peter doesn't focus. He doesn't look at Jesus. Instead, his eyes kind of wander around and then they settle on John walking a short distance away. And he asks Jesus, well, what then is John's fate? In my paraphrase, okay, Jesus, I'm going to die for the church but I'm going to build it first. But if that's what you're asking of me, then how bad is it going to be for everyone else? What are you going to do with John? How bad is his death going to be? And Jesus replied, if I want him never to die and live until the moment I come back, how does that affect you? We are talking about your ministry and not his. It's a pretty nice strong rebuttal and a nice piece of hyperbole. But there's a key lesson here in all of this. 
And I want us to hear this very clearly. Our faith and our status in heaven is not predicated on our rank or our comparison to each other. And neither are our ministries. What God calls us to do is not a sign that someone is more holy than another. Pastor John is not more holy than any of you. It's just that God has called him to serve in that pastoral role. It's not that the elders can pray more effectively than any of you. It's just that they are called to continuously pray and uphold the spiritual protection of this church. There is no difference to God between someone being a greeter at the front door and someone that does deliverance ministry. We might humanly and incorrectly rank those differently, but all God is looking at is our hearts. Are we serving in the best of our abilities? Are we serving with a good heart? Are we focused on him? Where are our eyes while we are serving? Do we compare our conduct to others? Are we jealous of what others are called to do? Have we avoided his gaze so completely that we are avoiding serving or even doing ministry? As we volunteer, are we just trying to learn and serve or just do and abide? Are you jealous of the relationships that others have with Jesus? And if you are, is it because you desperately want to be closer to Jesus or just because you don't want anyone else to be closer to him? Maybe we perceive that as others get closer to God, it makes us feel like we're further away. But this is not unique to us. It's universal to everyone. Even among those paragons of the early church, Luke mentions two occasions in chapter 9 and 22 that the apostles argue about which of them is the greatest. Do we think that they are arguing because Jesus made them in any way think that they were secondary made them compete for his attention, that they were not important to what he was doing? No. It was their insecurity and human nature that caused them to argue. But Jesus knows this. And he knows all our traits, and he still chooses to love us and work with us. And back to our story in John 21, we're going to witness a few details of those personal dynamics of the apostles and the self-confidence and relational issues that they were dealing with. So as I was kind of researching for this sermon, there was one part in the story that I kept reading, but I couldn't figure out why. And it was that line about betraying Jesus. Why does John describe himself as the one who had also leaned back on his chest at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one betraying you? Why would John refer to the Passover scene to identify himself? Now, John in his gospel constantly refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved or one of the sons of Zebedee. Basically, he uses any title that does not mention his actual name. It's a weird bunch of titles, and it kind of makes you wonder if John's doing this as some sort of like flex. Maybe it's a humble brag. I don't think it's either. I think it's actually a form of humility where John doesn't want to name himself, but mention the person he's most interested in talking about, Jesus. But in this particular scene, he uses a long and very specific description and refers to a specific scene. Why? Would it not have just been enough to mention he's the one sitting beside Jesus? Why that mention of the question? 
But since it's mentioned, John must want us to read about it. So let's do that. And this is found in chapter 13, 21 through 25. When Jesus had said these things, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of, sorry, that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Lying back on Jesus's chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter nodded to this disciple and said to him, tell us of whom he is speaking. Then he simply leaned back on Jesus's chest and said to him, Lord, who is it? So we have this scene and we see that Peter doesn't actually directly ask Jesus who the betrayer is. He's the first to kind of come out with the question, but he asks John to ask Jesus. John is in a place of closeness with Jesus and then just kind of casually rephrases the question much more directly. John is trying to tell us something about Peter through this scene. John is pointing out some of the details of the relationship between Peter and Jesus and also between himself and Jesus and between himself and Peter. We know that Jesus' three closest apostles are Peter, John, and James. But here we get the insight that they all have a different relationship to Jesus. John's is the intimate relationship. He just loves Jesus and is loved in return. And this really shows throughout his gospel. John's theme is to show Jesus as the messianic son of God, who was lifted up by the cross, but also lifted up and returned to full glory. Peter's ministry is to build the church, to be the leader, to organize and structure. This is hypersimplification, but in my mind, John is the best friend and Peter is the business partner. Now, Jesus loves them both equally and values them both equally, but they are in unique relationships and have different purposes. Peter struggles to have the same intimacy as John. He doubts how much the Lord trusts him and loves him. He loses focus. Remember, Peter is a trained fisherman. He is not the beloved disciple, and he has denied Jesus three times. In his mind, he is totally inadequate for what Jesus is asking him to do. He has a history of good intentions, but poor execution. And it's only in Acts at Pentecost that we finally see the changed Peter. And what has changed? He is working with the Spirit. His good intentions are gone, and now he has God's intentions. Peter by himself was totally incapable of doing all that Jesus wanted to ask of him. However, Peter, working with the Holy Spirit, was the rock upon which the church was built, just as Jesus spoke over him. Instead of looking away or remembering his past mistakes, Jesus focused on what was happening. And in that moment, what was the result? 3,000 people joined the church. So when Jesus asked Peter to follow me, Peter finally got it and kept his eyes on Jesus. Now, this sermon could have easily been called, Keep Your Eyes on Jesus. And we hear and sing sayings like this all the time. And others like, just follow Jesus. 
I'm forgiven by the blood of Jesus. My sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And Jesus broke all the chains. We say the words, but we don't always get their depth. As I was kind of writing this last line, you know, little sayings that we all know, Christianese, as I put it together. The line, Jesus broke all the chains, just kept kind of popping out. And the Lord reminded me of a word from intercessors last summer. The picture was in two parts. First, that there are people that don't know their bondage is broken. Their bondage to sin is broken. And so they are sitting in a dungeon with piles of heavy, large link chains piled around them. But the door to the prison is open and the chains are severed from them. But they just look at the pile of chains and they're so discouraged that they don't even try to go towards the door to walk out in freedom. The second part was that there were people who knew that Jesus had broken their chains. And so it escaped the dungeon. They were outside, but they were walking around dragging these long chains. They were like the Marley brothers in the Christmas carol, wrapped in the chains of their sins. Every movement required them to drag this weight behind them. However, what the Lord showed me is that these chains are only in their mind. That when Jesus broke our bondage to sin, he did not break the chains at the wall so that we have to drag around the weight of our old sins, but that he broke them at our wrists. He broke them at the fetters so that there is no place for the enemy to ever reattach those chains. To quote John 8, 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is a promise straight out of the Bible, straight from the word of God. So ask yourself, what is God telling me that I don't understand? What is he trying to get me to let go of? And stop dragging this imaginary weight behind me. Now we know these verses and sayings and many, many more. But how many times does Jesus have to stop us in our ways? Stop our lives? Interrupt our regularly scheduled programs? To make sure that we understand the completeness of the words that he has said. And that we are repeating. To make sure that we understand the full implications of what he has done for us. Like Peter, three times he is asked, do you love me? And twice Jesus tells him to follow me. That's just the ones that are mentioned. Yet like Peter, these words will not sink in for any of us until we let the Holy Spirit show us the truth. For how can a human understand the depth of God's love, of God's mercy? It's impossible. But let the Holy Spirit teach you, and these sayings will move past idioms, metaphors, and words on a black-bordered inspirational poster, and they will become the truth that anchors your life and grows your faith. Now, for some of you, I believe you are asking for that presence of the Holy Spirit, but believe it has not happened for you. You hear others talk about their experiences and have not felt those moments, have not felt that overwhelming presence. To quote biblical, there was no moment of Pentecostal fire. Like Peter and the others, you did not start speaking in tongues or seeing visions or speaking prophetic words of encouragement. That is okay. 
And in no way means that the Holy Spirit is not working in you. These gifts and experiences, they're great things. They are things to pray for, to ask for, and can be a normal part of your faith. But they are also not the only signs that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Nor are they mandatory for you to walk in faith, to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, and to follow him in completeness. Having inexplicable joy in the wake of difficulty, the discipline to wake at 5 a.m. to spend time in the word, to step out of your comfort zone and minister to a coworker, even just holding your tongue in an argument with your spouse. These may seem small, but they all serve as tangible evidence of a spirit-filled life. I believe that the prevalence of these qualities in our day-to-day life is the most telling sign of being full of the Holy Spirit. While a big aha moment is certainly possible, waiting for it in restless dissatisfaction can lead to missing the most powerful moments of all, the ones that come in small doses but carry much weight in the kingdom of God. The best evidence of God's power is your obedience. This is what Jesus, walking down that beach, was looking for. Peter's obedience. Peter, you are going to be persecuted, and in your old age you will die as I died, ingloriously on a cross. That's the end game. It's hard work, it's persecution, and it's going to require from you a constant level of faith and effort. Will you still follow me? And it is Peter's lifelong, continuous answer to that question that caused John Colson to declare that the Watergate scandal proves the Bible is true. So who was John Colson? Well, John Colson was the White House special counsel during the Watergate scandal. He was convicted, imprisoned, and then afterwards became a born-again preacher. And in his words, can anyone believe that for 50 years, Jesus' disciples were willing to be ostracized, beaten, persecuted, and all but one of them suffer a martyr's death without ever renouncing their conviction that they had seen Jesus bodily resurrected? Does anyone think the disciples could have maintained a lie all that time under that kind of pressure? No, someone would have cracked just as we did so easily in Watergate. Someone would have acted as John Dean did and turned state's evidence. There would have been some kind of smoking gun or a deathbed confession. So why didn't they crack? Because they had come face to face with the living God. They could not deny what they had seen. The fact is that people will give their lives for what they believe is true, but they will never give their lives for what they believe is a lie. The Watergate cover-up proves that 12 powerful men in modern America couldn't keep alive for two weeks, and that 12 powerless men 2,000 years ago couldn't have been telling anything but the truth. Peter knew the truth he had seen and witnessed, and when Jesus asked him to follow, like all of us, he was distracted. But the third time was the charm, and through, through Peter and others working in the Holy Spirit, came the early church and all those amazing stories that we read of in Acts and the rest of the New Testament. Ordinary people who were obedient to the truth that they had heard 
and then individually walking out their faith. And this is what God is looking for from you. We are all in different walks with the Lord. Some of you are still dating him. You're finding out about each other. You're exploring the relationship with that early excitement and fever while he waits on you to decide what label to give the relationship. (laughs) Others of you are in the new parent phase. The relationship between you is solid, but there's this new ministry baby that is shifting your expectations of each other. The trust is there between you both, but it is being stretched as more and new things are asked of it. And finally, some of you are in the mature phase. Your child has grown up and left the house, and now there's a new phase with the time to really get to know each other once again. And with time, develop a new depth that can only really happen with the passage of time. And this is where the metaphor breaks down, because these phases have nothing to do with our age. You can be 60 plus and still going into that spiritual parenting phase. Why? Well, I think because God has a sense of humor. But the other part is because God has a plan for your skills and your temperament. He has a plan for good, and he is going to carry all the load, or at least most of it. All he needs from you is to focus on him, follow him, and obey him. Peter and John were different people with different callings, and yet they complemented themselves so much. Think of the end times preparation that Peter was speaking on in 2 Peter. Does it mean as much without John's book of Revelation? Both John and Peter were called to preach to their own Jewish people. And Paul, who was the Jew among Jews, he was called to the Gentiles. Yet all their letters intertwine around each other because they are all centered on the same truth, the person of Jesus. Even James and Paul, who seem to be talking about opposing and opposite theologies, come together beautifully when we center them on the person of Jesus. All different people, all different walks, all different callings. Do we think Jesus loved one of them more than the other? So today, church, I'm going to ask that when you're talking to Jesus, you don't say, Lord, I could never do that. Or try to look away and say, but look at this going on in my life. But that when he says, you follow me, you look right back at him and say, by your power alone. And when he invites you down a walk on the beach, that you don't look back, but you look forward with him. Knowing Jesus requires our transformation. It means change. It means faith in that changing process. Did Peter change overnight in a Disney moment of swirling lights and fairy dust? No. It was daily steps of obedience and faith. It was a daily walk down the beach with Jesus for reassurance and encouragement to let him work in those flaws and failures and to use them to teach and train and to refocus. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you this morning for all the love, the grace, the mercy that you pour on us. Lord, we thank you that you work in our flaws that you work in our personalities, that you work in our individuality to create the things that you want for your kingdom. And Lord, we just 
look to your spirit and say, help us. Lord, we cannot do this on our own and we need you. And so, Lord, where we have looked with human eyes in, in jealousy or just looked at other things and coveted what other people have, Lord, we just ask that you show us what you have for us because, Lord, we know it's good. And we know that whatever we achieve through you is a good and perfect thing. And so, Lord, we just ask that in the weeks and the days ahead, Lord, that you would just come and you would just be upon us as we seek to become disciples of you, as we seek to move closer to who you are, to do the things that you've asked us, to, to be the people that you have asked us to be. And so, Lord, we just lay this before you this morning. Amen. How do we follow Jesus? Not Jesus, how do you follow me and, and come alongside me? But how do you follow Jesus? Jesus has called us as a church to follow me. Jesus says, follow me. So simple, yet so hard. You know what I mean? It's hard. What is Jesus saying to you today? What does it require for you to follow him? What does it require for you to lay down for, to say, I need to follow you? I want you to ask yourself that question. I want to ask yourself that question because I want you as a church and as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a son and as a daughter, as an inheritor of Christ's throne, to ask yourself that question because I want you guys as a church to come into a place of depth, to come into a place of understanding that is so much greater than what we know and come to that same place that Peter and John understood. I'm willing to die because Jesus first died for me. That I'm loving because Jesus first loved me. That everything that I do is because Jesus did it first. So church, I want us to come together as a church to be able to walk this out together and be faithful in that. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word we thank you for your spirit and lord we ask for your grace and your mercy that we as a church are able to walk out the commands you have for us for us to walk out the things that you have asked of us to do but when you ask us to do things that we first look at what you poured out into our life your love your grace your mercy and lord out of those things that we act so, Father God, we just ask that your spirit come over us, that your spirit comes and walks alongside of us, that your spirit comes and answers any questions that we, we may have, any doubts that, we, that may cause us to, to stumble, any doubts that may cause us to a place of unbelief. Lord, I just ask for you, or spirit, to come and just say, I am here, and I'm here to work this out with you. So Lord, we thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.